We ask you these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's um, turn to Luke chapter 1. And we will look at verses 26 through 30 this morning. And as you're getting there, I was thinking about how I was going to introduce this series, or mini-series, if you want to call it, in this Advent season. This is the season of Christmas, holiday season, and all of those things. And there were many culturally appropriate introductions that I could think of to introduce this subject. But because, as you see up there, our goal is to reclaim Christmas and this season, what we will consider as an introduction will also be the biblical account. So I will not try to appeal to the cultural um, nuances of Christmas to introduce this idea because the biblical account of Christmas is both a narrative and a historical account. And those of you that don't know what a narrative is, a narrative is just a story. It tells a story. A historical account, however, is not just a story, but it investigates the events and it presents factual reports about those events. That's the difference between one of the differences between a narrative and a historical account. A narrative is told for the sake of information and even maybe for the sake of entertainment. Think of the stories, the bedtime stories that you were told as a kid, whether they came from the Bible or from Disney characters. They're told for your information or maybe for your entertainment, as opposed to a historical account is presented as an evidence of the exact truth. And our text today is actually fits both those things. And um, this is what Luke tells us in the beginning of Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. He says, And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, right? Just as we heard the narrative of the things regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, is what he's saying. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in order, in an orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty. I think some translations have it as the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So, what we're looking at in this Christmas season, in this Christmas series, is both a narrative and an historical account. It's both for our information, but also as an evidence of the exact truth. So in our time together this morning, and for the next several weeks, really for the next three weeks after this one, as we consider the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, that what we are learning is intended, what we're going to be conversing about, what we're going to look at from the biblical um, text 
is going to be intended to give you an assurance of the reality of your faith in Christ. This is the intention of it, to give you assurance that gives you the reality of your faith in Him. So let's look at the passage this morning, which comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. And here's what the Word of God says. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. This is the word of God. So as we look at this account of the birth of Jesus, Luke's account begins with an intrusion of the supernatural into the natural. Right? There's an angel who comes from heaven into earth. And really the, the, the entirety of the chapter, the entirety of this account is pretty much has this theme in view. And the narrative of, of Luke begins with the status quo of this world, the natural realm in view. This is taking place as a context while things were as they were, as they've always been a natural realm. This was just a regular day in a regular world, and I think the term for it in the Gen Z language is things were just mid, right? It's just mid. Nothing, nothing too exciting about it. Well, temple worship was going on in the same way. There's a divine intrusion. Look, look down with me to chapter 1, verse 11. Really starting in verse 10. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside the hour of the incense and offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him. This is to Zechariah standing to the right of the altar of incense. So while religious activity was going on, just like it was for so many years, it's just, you know, it's normal for people to go to the temple. While this was happening, there's a divine intrusion into the natural. While governments were governing and taking census, and shepherds were shepherding their flock and keeping their flock, you can say when presidents were being presidents and politicians were being politicians and cowboys were being cowboys for our, for our cultural context. Guess what? There's a divine intrusion. And this theme just keeps happening in the beginning. In chapter 2, verse 9, we see this happening. An angel of the Lord stood before them when, in the same region where some shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock. I mean, this is just kind of like modern, like modern day cowboys would do. They're just making sure that it's just doing whatever people did. 
In verse 1, we, we see that uh, Caesar Augustus actually decreed a census to be taken. This was something that happened. It was a common occurrence. In a very common and regular mid-life, there's divine intrusion happening. And in our text also, while people were just living regular lives as single people, as married people, as people that are engaged to be married, there's a divine intrusion. The point is that Christmas, that this season that we're getting ready to celebrate in a couple of weeks, and this season that we're in, this remembrance of the celebration of the birth of our Lord Jesus is a remembrance and a celebration of a divine supernatural intrusion into the natural, mundane, dreadful, mortal order of the natural world. That's what we are celebrating, or that's what we are remembering in this time. So based on this, I want to give you today as an outline three truths that will give you assurance in the reality of the supernatural and divine birth of Jesus. Three truths that will give you an assurance that you can actually know that this actually happened and what you believe is not fake, but is the actual truth. First thing is, first truth that we want to consider is the divine source. Look down with me to chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Notice how this supernatural intrusion is supernatural because of its source. Now Gabriel is a messenger, is an angel. He's an he's a heavenly being. What makes him heavenly? What makes this intrusion not like someone just broke into the house. We don't know what form, and we know from the Bible that sometimes angels showed up as people, like as regular people. Sometimes it's a divine revelation. They are fearsome. It's something otherworldly. It's supernatural. You can't explain it, or never have you ever seen it before. We don't know exactly in what form he came, However, we know that he is one who stands in front of God. We see this in his answer to Zechariah in chapter 1, where he says, how would I know? He says, I am the angel Gabriel who stands before God in verse 19. And I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. So the angel Gabriel was sent. Notice the language. He was sent. He didn't just come by his own volition. There was a sender, right? The implication there is this angelic being, this supernatural being, which we can't fathom how and what form he came. But he, he did come. By the way, this eyewitness accounts. He was sent by the sender who was God. So what makes the message of the gospel, what makes the message of the birth of Jesus, 
What makes this season unique, divine, and supernatural is the fact that it came from a place that is beyond the natural. And the means by which it comes is also determined by the supernatural source. In this case, it's an angelic vision. It's, a, it's an angel showing up to Mary and saying, hey. Or it's an angel showing up to, to, to the shepherds and saying, I'm here. It's an angel showing up to Zechariah in the temple. It's, in this case, it's that. In some cases, there's natural occurrences, like a star in the sky. You guys know the story, right? You guys know the narrative? You know, the three wise men or the kings from far came to find Jesus because there was a natural occurrence that they were actually studying. They were astrologers. They worked for the NASA of, uh, of that, that, that day, if you will. And they, they knew how the stars lined up. God sometimes uses that nat- natural occurrence, the supernatural source, and the means by which it's communicated is sometimes by an angel, sometimes it's natural occurrence. But most assuredly, it's through his written word. Hence, we're reading it, and since we are looking at it, so you can be assured that you are not celebrating something that is from this natural realm, something that's made up. You can be assured of that, that it's divine, because it's divine, it comes from the divinely inspired scriptures. Because your assurance is tied to the very source of the message of Christmas. The source is not natural. The source is supernatural. And your assurance comes from that supernatural source. And not from the natural effort and consequences of your actions. Second truth that I want us to look together this morning is the desperate and desolate reality found in this text. Notice when the supernatural invades and interrupts, the natural is within the realm of reality. As we've seen in our, in, in our introduction, shepherds were shepherding, politicians were being politicians, uh, priests were being priests, worshipers were being worshipers, people were getting married and being engaged, and they were single. I mean... It happens in reality. It doesn't happen outside of reality. We're talking about real people in real places dealing with real things. I mean, in verses 5 through 25, we see that there's even a couple who's been trying to have children, and they were not. And, and I mean, we, we, we notice that... Uh, that Elizabeth, who is the cousin of Mary, was disgraced among people in verse 25. I mean, she was struggling to deal and cope with the reality of the fact that she cannot bear children. So when the divine and the supernatural invades the natural realm, it's within this desperate and desolate reality we call life. These are real people with names and faces. Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah. 
in real places, Jerusalem, Nazareth in this case. Look at what it says. He came to Galilee. That's the region called, the city called Nazareth. To a virgin named Mary, who was betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. These are real people dealing with real things like engagement and marriage preparation and building a family, building a home, building a life together. What do these things and people have in common? Besides being like actually real, what do Galilee and Nazareth and Mary and Joseph, what do these things have in common, really? They're regular, uninteresting, unremarkable, ordinary, mid, if you will. There's nothing. Inherently, you know, they just just desolate. The reality is seeing mundane, it keeps happening over and over again. Listen to what John chapter 1, verse 46 says when Nathaniel, who's actually one of the disciples of Jesus, says this about who Jesus is and where he came from, about one of these places, right? And Nathaniel said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Again, in John chapter 7, verse 41, others were saying, this is the Christ. Still, others were saying, no. For is the Christ going to come from Galilee? I mean, these are really interesting, unremarkable, ordinary, actually less than ordinary. I don't know what the Gen Z term is for less than mid, but whatever that is, that's what it was. Just desperate desolate places. John chapter 7, verse 52, the, the Pharisees said to Jesus, they answering him, are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Like these places aren't something that you would think someone as interesting, someone as important, someone as high key as Jesus would come. just a desperate, desolate reality that people were living in when this divine intrusion happens. Which gets me to the point that the only reason these places and these people, both, the, the, both of them being real, dealing with real things, the only reason they become a place and people of interest for us and really for the, for the entirety of the world and the entirety of history is because of this divine intrusion that we are considering this morning. The uninteresting, ordinary, desperate, and desolate finds life and value and becomes active when the divine interrupts it. It's in light of the divine that the natural actually finds purpose and meaning in life and excitement. I mean, think about your lives. Think about your real 
condition today. That's ordinary. You go to school, guess what? I went to school, my dad went to school, his dad went to school, and his granddad went to school. You're trying to make ends meet? Guess what? People have been trying to make ends meet. There's nothing special about that kind of life. Oh, you have a talent. You can sing, or you can play sports, or you can write, or you can draw, whatever it is. Praise God for that, by the way. I'm not discounting the value of that. But people have been doing that. People have been talented, and people have been making art, and people have been playing sports. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's mundane, it's ordinary, right? I mean, there's only a few conversations about the GOAT, right? But even that, it's an argument because who's the GOAT? Michael Jordan or LeBron or Kobe? And he says LeBron, I say Michael Jordan, but guess what? Both of them have been playing in another 20 years. There's going to be somebody else that's going to come up and be in the mix of the conversation. And an older person would say, what are you, guys, what are you youngest talking about? It was Kareem. The point is this. It's the same thing playing out over and over and over and over and over and over again. So when you consider it, it's desperate, desolate reality. What's the point of it all? Unless, in the midst of all of that, the supernatural invades your reality and shows you the great good news of Jesus Christ who gives eternal life to those who would believe in him and repent from their sin. And then your entire worldview changes. The reason why the Christian life, and by the way, if you have not embraced this reality and this truth in a way that actually makes a difference in your day-to-day life, today is the day of salvation and today is the day of commitment. Because, I mean, most of us who grew up, and I'm looking around and I'm seeing people who grew up in a Christian household, and we're not really experiencing the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're kind of like living this mundane, you know, you wake up tomorrow morning, you go to school, you come home, you listen to your parents if you're in high school. You don't listen to your parents if you're in college and above, right? And then you kind of just do this whole cycle of coming to church and then doing this. This, this, this just becomes a routine. And you never really experience when, when this desperation and when this desolation in your life, when there's just, just living, you know, you're just surviving. You're really not thriving. Could I challenge you this morning? Could it be that either you have not experienced this divine interruption or you, in your life or maybe you're considering it as something that is not worthy enough for you to do that because when the divine this supernatural interrupts the life of the natural what give what happens is life what happens is purpose what it gives is meaning to your life What it gives is excitement to your worship and to your life. 
And if you're seeking life and purpose and meaning and excitement in the natural order of this desperate and desolate reality, then you're not gonna you're not gonna find it. If what Christmas is is circling a bunch of um, things on on a on a little magazine, that it, or you give a wish list to somebody, uh, and and then you wait until December twenty fifth to open up some gifts, and you get a PS five or the new shoes that you were looking for, whatever that you were looking for. If that's Christmas for you, and you get excited about that, and those things aren't bad, by the way. If you're if you want a PS five or pair of shoes that they're not inherently bad but if that's it what happens after that what happens on december 27th what happens on july 13th of the next year when you've played all the games that you could play on on the video games and you've worn out those shoes what happens is there enough excitement in your life about that christmas no there isn't because you've been looking for meaning and purpose and excitement in the natural. But when in reality, meaning and purpose and life, actually the way that it's supposed to be lived, is supposed to come as a result of the divine, the supernatural interruption into your life. And it is an interruption. It's inconvenient. It's going to tell you, don't do this. But do that. It's going to interrupt your sinfulness. It's going to interrupt your wanting to do whatever pleases you at all times. It's going, to inter- it's going to interrupt your plans that you have in your own mind. It is an interruption, hence this title is Divine Interruption. The divine will interrupt your plan to give meaning and purpose and excitement and true life as it is to your life, though. Because you don't know what's best for you. I don't know what's best for me. Only the supernatural knows how to interrupt the natural to bring about salvation to others. This is what Christmas is about. If you have trusted in the revelation of this divine source, though you live in this desperate, desolate reality, your life is going to be animated by his divine intervention. Problems going to arise, and guess what? Guess who is going to be the source of your, 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 your excitement, even in the midst of trouble? You're going to have times where you don't feel like doing stuff. Still, you're, you don't feel really alive, but guess who is going to be the source of your life? Maybe a thought comes across your mind, a flashing thought about death and the reality of it. Guess who becomes your life even after death? Who is the source of life but God? Your activity and your excitement and your value and your meaning is fine in the supernatural truth. How then do you receive it? What then should you do? leads me to the third truth for us to consider, which is divine favor. 
the basis, foundation, the fundamental principle on which this divine intrusion is found is grace. Look down with me to chapter 1, Luke, in verse 28. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And look down to verse 30. Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. So let's consider real quickly this greeting from the angel's perspective. He calls Mary favored one. Again, in a passive voice, implying that not only she is favored by like she's receiving this favor from someone, but the implication here is there is one who favors, who shows favor to others. And this is a reality for, for all of us. Right? If, you've ever, if anybody has ever done you a favor, what did you do? You just received it. If, if you've been a recipient of favor, it's because someone was doing a favor for you. Right, And it's both like and unlike her cousin, by the way. If you want to look with me to see the story of her cousin in chapter 1, verse 5. Talking about in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And check this out. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteousness of requirements of the Lord. So we get the quality of Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, Elizabeth being the mother of Mary. And then the angel appears, you know the story, he tells them that even in their old age, God is going to give them a child, and this child is going to be an amazing child by Jesus' own account and words, that he's actually going to be the greatest man ever lived. No greater man has ever lived until this time, until the kingdom of God, than John the Baptist, right? But notice how Elizabeth responds to this in verse 25 of chapter 1 in Luke. This is the way the Lord had dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me with favor to take away my disgrace among men. So from the angel's perspective, Unlike her cousin, and like her cousin, who is not addressed this way, but has the same conclusion. The message and the foundational principle of this divine intrusion is divine favor, is divine grace. And we see that even clearly in Mary's response to this kind of greeting. Look at what she says in verse 29. She was very perplexed at the statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. The response is to this divine favor is what? 
what kind of greeting is this? What have I done to receive this favor? Let's make this real. If I walked up to you and gave you $100, just didn't say anything to you and just say, hey, good morning, here, $100. And you're like, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Why did you give it to me? What's this for? This is supernatural. This divine favor on which our salvation is based upon is going to have this divine favor, this supernatural, otherworldly kind of favor. So Mary's thought is, on what Mary do I receive this divine intrusion on my life? She's troubled. She was even perplexed, it says in the text. There's, she's confused, like, what, what, what is, what's happening? I mean, there's definitely a level of fear there because there's a supernatural being standing in front of him, in front of her. And we get that from his response, do not be afraid, don't be scared of what I look like. Don't... Yet she is troubled because the ordinary is always troubled to comprehend the extraordinary. It's hard for us to fathom. It's hard for Mary to fathom in this way. God's unmerited favor, that's what grace is, right? This divine favor is unmerited. It's not something that you have done something for. It's not a payment for your works. This is unmerited. There's nothing there that you have done. And his unmerited favor that is bestowed on the natural realm is incomprehensible. And it seems strange. It's weird. I can't, I can't get it. What, how, how, does that, what, how does that even make sense? And then it leaves you pondering. The same grace that perplexed Mary and left her pondering was the same grace that Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 7 says about, about it like this. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. So you might find someone that can die for someone that is righteous. You know, like, this guy is so good, don't do this, take me instead. One might, listen to the language, one will hardly die. Like, there's, there's a chance, but there's a slim chance that one might do that. For a righteous man. Though, perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. Verse 8 says, because he's perplexed by this. But Christ died for us while we were still enemies, while we were yet sinners. Not while we were good. Because you might find, you might reason, in a natural sense, the natural world would say, hey, if someone is good and someone dies for them, you know, that, that makes sense. But th this is the supernatural thing that... that, that just blows the mind of Paul and really leaves Mary perplexed is, okay, I get it. If I was good and, and you said you, like you came to me, yeah, but there's something good in me at least. But what, what, what is happening? This is supernatural. It's divine favor that, it, that leaves you wondering and how strange it is. 
John even himself says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. Search your hearts. Search your attitude. What are you thinking about right now? What are you doing even in this moment? What does your life look like that has earned you the position to be called the child of God? What good thing have you done for God that made God say, yes, that person or this person is going to be called my child? Like, what can you actually bring to him and say, okay, on the merit, on the basis of like my church attendance, can you adopt me into your family? Would God adopt you that way? Because that's how it usually works in the natural realm, right? And John ponders about that and perplexed by it. He says, what manner of love is this? That we would be called the children of God because he knows how we are. He knows where, how fast our heart wanders. So the same thing is at work here in the heart of Mary, I believe, that this angelic being shows up and says, highly favored one, greetings, the Lord is with you. Like, what? Uh, why, why is the Lord with me? <laughs> what do I, I'm perplexed, I'm pondering. Because the ordinary is always troubled to comprehend the extraordinary. This divine intrusion of favor is so incomprehensible it's easier for us to come up with and embrace some gift-exchanging holiday that is based on whether or not you've been good or bad. And then this old guy can actually come down the chimney and eat your cookies and milk and break into your house, eat your milk and cookies, and then leave you some gift. It's easier for us to come up with an idea like that and celebrate it, embrace it about being gifts-exchanging it's easier for us to comprehend that than comprehend that a divine being who stands outside of time, outside of space, can actually come into the world, into a virgin who's never been with a man before, and actually conceive a child, and in that humble state comes in to relieve us from this desolate, desperate reality we call life on earth and give us eternal life instead. That's too incomprehensible. For what? For nothing. Because this divine favor is just that. It's divine. And in a world that is growing in its enmity with God, in a world, dare I say, that has killed God, so to speak, from the age of enlightenment, it's the age of reason. It's the age of science. Believe in science and technology advancements and all of those things. In an age that is completely saying, we don't want God in our schools. We don't want God in our politics. We don't want God even in some of our churches. I'd rather entertain you or tell you good things about yourself and how awesome you're going to be and how successful you're going to be how, how you're going to inherit and have a lot of money, marry the husband of your dreams and drive the car of your dreams, have the job of your dreams and have the bank account of your dreams 
if you just give me X amount of money. In a, in a world that is constantly saying God can be shunned, he can, he can have the backseat, best case scenario, to say God is with you now, here. Show the proper respect as if God is in here with you right now. It's incomprehensible. What kind of thing? Where's God? I don't see him. All I see is this strange man standing up there with an old book talking about truths that are coming out of it. But I, I, don't, I don't feel him. In a world that's like that, the Lord is with you. A greeting like favored one, the Lord is with you, is perplexing and confusing. So we get it. But this is the, the amazing thing about the divine favor. This is why one of my other favorite hymns of all time is Amazing Grace. It starts off by saying, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved the what? A wretch like me. It's amazing. I can't, the word amazing, it doesn't just mean like, hey, it makes me happy. It's like, I cannot comprehend it. It's incomprehensible grace. It's unmerited favor. And it's so sweet. Because it saved a wretch like me, not because I did anything. In fact, this unmerited favor, this divine favor finds people in this desperate, desolate place while people are still struggling with sin. In the midst of their sin is where God finds. Consider the way that you were saved. If you are saved, if you're not, this is the day of salvation, by the way. If you have not considered and giving your life to Christ, this is also an evangelistic message. This is a message for you. It's perplexing. It doesn't make sense. But the Lord is with you. That's the reality. That's divine favor. The Lord is with you, not because you deserve the Lord to be with you. In fact, you, we none of us deserve the Lord to be with us if we were look at, to look at our actions, if we are to look at our thoughts, if we are to look at our attitude, if we are to look at what we actually do when nobody's looking? What, what, what would we actually think about when we think no one is looking? The Lord being with us is the last thing that we deserve. But the Lord is with you because this divine favor is upon you. This is what Gabriel is telling Mary. This supernatural invasion is based on this divine favor. And this divine favor doesn't invade the natural because the natural has anything to offer in return. It's not because it's supernatural to be recognized or acknowledged for the supernatural to be supernatural or to remain in that state of supernatural. Guess what? God does not need us to be God. God doesn't need your faith or your repentance or your allegiance or your songs or your Bible reading to remain eternally praised. Just like Elon Musk doesn't need your $5 to remain rich. What's my $5 going to do to a gazillionaire? 
Is, he gonna, is it going to make him like that much greater? I mean, it's a bad example. It's a, a, there's no comparison or parallel that I can draw. But it, it falls incredibly short to the divine favor, by the way. But you walking up to Elon Musk and giving him a dollar, I mean, he might take it, but it's not going to make him that. He's not going to stop being rich if you don't give him the dollar is the point. God is not going to stop being God. He's not going to stop being divine. He's not going to be, he's not going to stop being supernatural if you don't acknowledge that he's supernatural. So if you're looking at this divine favor that is in front of us with some level of skepticism, with some kind of doubt, with some kind of reservation, and and you're kind of like, I don't know about all of that. You, the natural, are the one missing out, not God, the supernatural. But if you, however, have trusted in the supernatural truth, of the word of God and would trust in the divine source of this message, even in your desperate, desolate state, condition of your reality, and you receive this divine grace and faith, you are assured that the divine intrusion has taken hold of your life and will keep you for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your supernatural presence in our midst this morning. To be reminded of your supernatural intrusion of our lives through your son, Jesus Christ, who was born to a virgin in a way that doesn't make sense to us naturally, but your supernatural divine grace has caused us to believe in this has opened our eyes to this. So, Father, we want to thank you for intervening into our natural lives, this mundane, mortal, dreadful life in a natural sense. And you bestowed upon us a grace and a favor that is unmerited and yet supernatural because it comes from you. We're so grateful for that. Lord, we ask that we are convicted and gripped by this message, by this truth that is found in your word as we think about this season of joy and life. As the season of Christmas approaches, let us reclaim the truth of your word in our lives and live according to it by your grace and the help of your spirit. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.